This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week. I'm Linda Mottram. Russian troops muscle up for an assault on Ukraine's east and the West races to rearm Ukrainian defenders. The prospects are grim. What we're going to see is a fight to the death in the Donbass, which will end either with the Russians being pushed back or withdrawing or a sort of exhausted stalemate in which you get some kind of frozen conflict. And China's zero COVID strategy is stretched to its limits as its worst outbreak yet tears through Shanghai. How long can its hardline policy last? First up, though, the campaign for the next government of Australia kicked off this week after the Prime Minister called an election for May 21st. And the opposition was derailed on day one when its leader, Anthony Albanese, bungled key statistics. What's the national unemployment rate? National unemployment rate at the moment is, uh, I think it's 5.4. Sorry, I'm not sure what it is. What matters about that is he thought unemployment had a five in front of it, not even a four in front of it. And it's going to a number with a three in front of it. I'm human, but when I make a mistake, I'll fess up to it and I'll set about correcting that mistake. I won't blame someone else. I'll accept responsibility. That's what leaders do. You can't risk it with a Labor Party and a Labor leader that can't manage money. Scott Morrison has put the economy and defence at the heart of the coalition's pitch, painting Labor as soft on both. He made another job creation promise, while the opposition focused on health for much of the week. Polls put Labor ahead of the coalition, though Scott Morrison still ranks as Australia's preferred leader in the Australian newspaper's news poll. And the divisions in Australia are running deeper than ever. The country's divided probably any which way you care to measure it. Young people versus old people, city versus region, the southeast versus the north and the west. George Megalogenis is an author and journalist. And we've had a, a repetition of the same election, I think, since 2010. This sort of polarisation has been creeping up on us because we haven't had, you know, the US version of it, which is the election of a Donald Trump-like figure, or the British version, which is a, uh, you know, almost an act of sort of national isolation with Brexit. We've had now three out of the past four federal elections, 2010, 2016 and 2019, basically break the same way. Coalition get a big majority in Queensland and in Western Australia on the on the floor of the House of Representatives. And Labor gets a majority, much smaller majority, but still a notable majority in Victoria, New South Wales, South Australia, and on and off in Tasmania and the two territories. So that country is literally split between the southeast and the sort of the two frontier or the resource states, uh, Queensland to the north and Western Australia to the west. And looking at the equation going into this election, Scott Morrison's best chance is to try and hold that polarisation, in a sense, hold that disengagement where it's been the last 10 years, because he thinks he's a chance to get back over the line, either in a minority government or with a very, very narrow majority. When you look at his strategy, which is essentially look at the big picture, we're the best on the economy, we're the best on security, don't change horses now, it's a very uncertain world. Is that going to hold for him, do you think? 
We know that pitch has worked in the past. You would normally back the incumbent to get back in circumstances like this, which is, you know, very, very unstable global order. You know, the country's been locked down for two years, so we've only had ourselves to get along with. <laughs> and if you assume polarisation is sort of baked in, there's nothing to suggest that there's suddenly going to be a rush of voters from one side to the other, either to give the government a big majority or to give Labor a sort of a realignment, a new majority, one that sort of erases the last 10 years. COVID is the wild card in this because we know that the first few elections we had, we had state and territory governments re-elected. And in the case of Western Australia and Queensland, the Labor governments were elected with increased majorities. And in the case of Western Australia, a landslide. New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern's government gets returned in a landslide. Justin Trudeau gets re-elected last year, albeit with a minority. But something obviously switched over summer because we know the government's numbers had been going in the wrong direction. And certainly there was an acceleration in Labor's lead over over the course of the summer of the Omicron outbreak. Mm. And we had a state election just last month in South Australia where the storyline switched because not only was the government thrown out after a single term, the incoming opposition are back in a landslide. So that tells you that something, at least in South Australia, has switched from a pro-incumbent, you know, rally around the flag, I want us to beat this pandemic to I'm over this pandemic, I'm sick of the side of the politicians who've been doing uh, daily press conferences with their chief medical officer for the past two years. That's the wild card to me. If there's a mood out there um, that is just fed up with the people who've been in your face for the last two years, we've had nothing but politics for the last two mm, years. Yeah. Let's um, just take that a little bit further because the opinion polls show things are, you know, really Labor's got a bit of a lead, but it's not, you know, galloping and and Labor's kind of struggling with its message, isn't it? I mean, this it seems really fearful after losing last time with a, a big sort of raft of policies that they got slammed on by the coalition and then lost the election. So now they seem to be doing the small target strategy. How do you assess Labor's approach I think it's fair to say, and even if even if Anthony Albanese didn't have that sort of day one trip up where he gets bombarded those, you know, tricky poo questions, as Paul Keating used to call them, <laughs> um, you know, nominate the cash rate target and nominate the unemployment rate. Even if that hadn't happened, there was a sense that Albanese and the Labor Party are cautiously approaching the start of the campaign. Let's not go with a big bang on policy. Let's not even go too negative at the start against the Prime Minister, who's clearly, you know, in difficulty if you look at his approval rating, just as you look at the bare facts of his approval rating. But they start nervous because even though they've got a, you know, notionally a big lead in the polls, they've got twice as many marginal seats as the government has. So they need a big national across the board swing to just get the extra seven seats they need to form a minority, a majority of one. At the moment, the government goes into the election with 76 seats and 46 of those 76 seats are in the regions. Labor goes into the election with 69 seats and 46 of those 69 seats are, I guess, where? The capital cities. Indeed. And there's something, there's something about the way Albanese has started his campaign that tells me that they're looking, you know, almost as, a, uh, as an insurance policy to start in the cities and try and pinch an extra couple of seats there from their side of the fault line. And look, from what I understand of the way both parties look at the electoral map, Labor looks at seats in Perth, the odd seat in in Adelaide and Melbourne, and possibly even an ethically diverse seat in Sydney, in and around the inner west, as the electorate of Reid. They're looking to pick up those seats and hopefully get them to a position, even if they don't get a majority, they're in front in the event of a hung parliament. Morrison is sort of looking at the electoral map, almost the reverse image of what Albanese is looking at. You know, he's sort of written off the AFL states, at least the capital cities in those AFL states, Melbourne, Adelaide and Perth. 
and he's looking to regional New South Wales. He'd mm. like to uh, he'd like to pick up Gilmore. He'd like to maybe pick up a seat in the Hunter. And bear in mind, this is when you sort of prod them off the record. This is what both people will acknowledge. Their starting point is a hung parliament. Personally, I'm not sure if there's a mood for a change. The electorate may have already made up its mind. But if Labor doesn't doesn't sort of grab the prize of a shift away from the polarisation, the gridlock of the last 10 years, and this is not an angry gridlock, this is sort of an exhausted gridlock. If they don't shoot for the prize of a, of a big majority, maybe it's not there for them. Given this mood, given how that's playing out, showing up in the in the polls and what you're hearing behind the scenes, is there an obvious way for, in this case, let's talk about Labor, to bridge this divide between, you know, as you say, the frontier states and and the, the wealthy cities? There's really only one voter that would cause a switch, a voter that probably cuts across the fault lines, and that's older women. So the coalition, every time the coalition turns up at an election, it turns up with a sort of home ground advantage. Uh, people aged 55 and over, you know, vote overwhelmingly coalition. If older women, and you could, you could think three or four issues that would, that would motivate them to switch and to switch across the board. If older women are fed up with the treatment of women generally and thinking on behalf of daughters and granddaughters, if they're nervous about delivery of services, health, aged care, you know, San Anthony Albanese is talking about aged care now. It was almost a free kick that the government gave them by not, not implementing to the letter the recommendations of the Royal Commission, which sort of was then that slow hanging fruit for Labor to just implement the Royal Commission that the government had called, if those voters decide, even if they only do it for once, to vote against their lifetime uh, loyalty to a Conservative government, that's where a big switch will occur. Author and journalist George Megalogenis. Well, evidence of Russia's brutal atrocities in Ukraine has rallied more support from the West. On Tuesday, the US President Joe Biden accused Russia of genocide for the first time. I call it genocide because it's become clearer and clearer that Putin is just trying to wipe out the idea of even being able to be Ukrainian. He pledged another $750 million in military aid. Hundreds of millions of dollars worth of new weapons and equipment are also coming from Britain, the EU and New Zealand. Western arms in the hands of Ukrainians have gutted Russia's military. Western officials say seven Russian generals have been killed and perhaps a quarter of their initial combat force lost. But Russia's President Vladimir Putin is undeterred. Reports this week suggested his troops had dropped chemical weapons on the southern city of Mariupol. And Austria's Chancellor Karl Nehammer said after a meeting with Mr Putin this week that an offensive in eastern Ukraine is being prepared on a massive scale. So Putin's plan A was to seize the entire country quickly, put in a puppet government and declare victory as a fait accompli. Plan B was to stand off and pound the cities with artillery and missiles and try to break civilian morale. And neither of those worked. And so now Putin has turned to plan C, which is to limit the aims to sections of the east and the Donbass, the provinces that are Russian-speaking and most closely connected with the Russian sphere. Gideon Rose is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a former editor of Foreign Affairs magazine. If the Russians had done this right from the beginning, it would have been a much easier task and it also would have been 
it might not have provoked the same massive response that the full-scale aggression against the entire country did. But they didn't. And by having to resort to this, to retreat to this as a fallback strategy, it makes it less likely to succeed than it would have originally. On the other hand, it's an area that is better for Russia to be able to deploy its artillery and its tanks and its mobile units. They can operate more freely in the Donbass, but it is also at this point going to be an operation staffed with defeated troops, new fresh troops that were basically scrounged up from wherever they could. And so even though there will be learnings from the first phases of the war in which Russian forces performed extremely poorly, having to implement those learnings with bad troops, even though they're fresh, and a, a command that still has a lot of the same fundamental problems against an enemy that is now motivated. Putin originally thought he'd be welcomed. The kinds of tactics he's now resorting to are the ones that will only turn his supposedly brother country against him and make a long-term occupation even more difficult. Can we talk a bit more about how Russia's fighting force is at the moment? I mean, what's left of it, I guess? Um, because we've seen, you know, endless images of battalions eviscerated. Is Russia going to have to resort now to groups like its mercenaries in the Wagner Group, which has worked in the Donbass, really, that's their home territory, isn't it? Or or even worse, to things like chemical weapons. So this is a great question, because there are several things Russia can do now that its original strategy has proven to not work. It can reduce its goals. It could even end the war. It could escalate to, let's say, the nuclear level or threaten to do so. And it could try to continue to win the war on a conventional basis, but with new troops, better strategy and better leadership. That last seems to be what they're trying to do. It's almost as if they said, okay, we screwed up, but we don't want to risk nuclear war. We don't want to give in. And so we're going to try again with a new set of forces under a new general and a new strategy that doesn't make the same dumb mistakes as the first time. The question is, do they still have the ability to pull that off? Because the troops they're getting, the, the mercenaries and the Chechens and the ones they've scrounged together from private forces, they're not high quality fighting units. They sent in their best and their best were beaten. Now, they still have other troops and they still have remnants that they can cobble together. And the Ukrainians are also suffering from having lost a lot. They won't be able to roll over the, uh, the Ukrainians. The question is whether they'll be able to grind them down and crush them by superior fight. One of the interesting questions here also is Putin is coming up against some internal limits that he'd set for himself. He's insisted that it was a special military operation, not a war. One of the things that involves is not a full-scale mobilization. To mobilize the resources Russia potentially has, which is much larger than Ukraine, obviously, would require him to go to war status, something he doesn't want to admit. So the interesting question here is not just what Russia could throw into this fight, but what it will choose to throw into this fight at what level and how those new forces will perform. I want to ask you about the new general that uh, Vladimir Putin has put in charge of the operations, General Alexander Dvornikov, um, who is known as the butcher of Syria. Is he going to make any real difference here? 
The big difference he makes is being a general in charge. The most interesting fact about the first wave of the Russian attack was there was nobody in charge, no single general in the theater or the region controlling things. And they attacked on too many fronts, spread out their forces too thin, and they weren't really coordinated. By putting a general in, it's like a recognition that running everything out of the Kremlin easily isn't enough. We need somebody there in charge, a serious professional military expert. The second thing is, okay, what about which is the particular expert they chose and why? What is this general's capacity? He's obviously, A, a good professional, and B, a brutal thug who has no problems using force to the utmost. On the other hand, that's what we've already seen, as I said, in phase B. When the first troops moved in, they tried to behave nicely because they thought they would be greeted nicely and the country would cave quickly. When that fantasy fell apart after the first week of war, the Russians turned to a more traditional Russian tactic of pounding away and hoping to break morale. The question is, how long can they keep this up? How much more opprobrium will they get? And will the Ukrainians who are being supplied and supported by the West, are they going to be able to hold out? The, at this point, it's a test of wills as much as it is a test of combat. And again, it comes back to the question of how far does Putin want to go? Mm. He has lots of reserves and lots of forces that he could unleash, but he has held things in check. And it seems right now to be a war of conventional mobile warfare plus artillery shelling. And I, I think it'll stay limited to that. But who will come out on top in the next few weeks is unknown. And just we've mentioned the Ukrainians in passing. I mean, what state are they in now? They've, they've lost a lot. They've done very well. Their morale has been crucial. I mean, are they being supplied sufficiently for this next phase? What's your assessment of them? The Ukrainians have performed above everybody's expectations. Nobody imagined, first of all, that Zelensky would, uh, his next role would be a, a Winston Churchill. He's done great and and get in galvanizing global support. He's become a, a global hero. Uh, he's become the leader of the West, some have said. But the Ukrainian troops have also performed extremely well. That has given them great confidence. It's also the Russian atrocities have increased the determination of the Ukrainians to fight back and not give in. As for the aid, the interesting fact about the war going forward is that unlike the war to date, it will probably require heavier equipment, not just anti-tank missiles and, and Molotov cocktails and brave civilian soldiers, but maybe even tanks, air defenses, maybe some, some air power of some kind. And these are things that the West has resisted giving up to now, because it might be seen as provocative. But now that the decisive final phases of the war are occurring, I think they might just be willing to give the Ukrainians or find a way to get the Ukrainians whatever is necessary for the war to continue on a conventional level. Both sides don't want to go nuclear, and I think there's no real prospect of both sides going nuclear. So what we're going to see is a fight to the death on the conventional level in the Donbass, which will end either with the Russians being pushed back or withdrawing, choosing to withdraw, or a sort of exhausted stalemate along the lines of contact in which you get some kind of frozen conflict. And it's going to be every bit as ugly, if not worse, as what we've seen already, presumably. It's going to be really ugly. The question is how this ends. Putin knows he's made a mistake. He's been forced to publicly recant his goals and restrict his operations. 
This is a position not dissimilar, frankly, from, let's say, what the American leadership found itself in in the late 1960s in Vietnam, or what the Americans, the Bush, Obama, and Biden administrations found themselves in Iraq and Afghanistan from the mid-aughts on. You've gotten into a war, you've made mistakes, you have no way forward. You really should just walk away and cut your losses and move on. But it's humiliating. It's costly. It's psychologically difficult to do that. And so what's necessary here is not just to convince the Russians that they've lost or beaten or can't achieve their goals. What has to happen beyond that is the Russians have to connect the dots themselves. Putin has to accept a stalemate or a defeat. And so the goal of the Western powers is not and the Ukrainians is not just to hold off the Russian attacks and defeat them on the battlefield or push them back. We want him to do what the Americans took a decade to do in Vietnam and go away. Do what the Americans took a decade to do in Iraq and walk away. Do what the Americans took two decades to do in Afghanistan before walking away. The question is, how do you get Putin to do that in a few weeks? Gideon Rose from the Council on Foreign Relations. Anger in the Chinese city of Shanghai has been bubbling over this week over a strict lockdown that has dragged on for weeks, causing shortages of food and medicine. The city of 25 million people is in the grip of the country's worst COVID outbreak yet. As most of the world is opening up, China is still clinging on to its zero COVID strategy and imposing more and more draconian measures. The outset of the week, there was huge anger in Shanghai about the separation of parents from children if one of them tested positive. And videos emerged of uh, many very young children all being grouped together in hospital beds, their parents nowhere to be seen. Bill Bertels is the ABC's East Asia correspondent. And this, of course, caused huge anger and fear among parents in Shanghai that if you test positive, then either you get carted off to an isolation centre or even worse, your child does. That was the first thing. Then videos emerged a couple of days later of family pets being bagged up and slaughtered on the streets of Shanghai because their owners had tested positive to COVID. Cats and dogs. You can imagine how that went down. And then the anger continued because there's been food shortages due to the supply chain disruptions from the the lockdown. All these things added together have just caused this outpouring of anger, particularly online, which you don't often see in China these days. And I read that people have been yelling from their apartment towers as well. I mean, it seems a very, there's a lot of bubbling anger there. Yeah, we've seen a bit of this um, in various Chinese cities during the lockdown. But the thing is, previously in the Wuhan lockdown, for example, people were yelling things like, come on, Wuhan, let's all do it together. Whereas this time around, it seemed to be uh, people expressing anger, yelling at uh, very local level officials down the bottom of these compounds who were forcing everybody to stay inside or or keeping the gates locked or whatever it was. And you even had this uh, footage that went uh, viral of a police drone flying up uh, into the middle of this apartment complex where everybody was yelling, telling people to obey the rules. And uh, maybe it's a bad Chinese translation, but to suppress their desire for freedom. 
So these sorts of uh, videos and images have become more common as the lockdown has continued. And maybe worse yet, at the beginning of this week, Shanghai officials actually announced a plan which would ease the lockdown. It would allow some residents out if their communities hadn't clocked any new COVID cases for a fortnight. And yet within a couple of days, they backtracked on that. I've spoken this week to a few residents who should be eligible to go out, but the local district officials have told them, well, we're still not going to let you out because there are COVID cases in surrounding neighbourhoods. We are really angry about this authority now. It could affect our job, our occupation and our family. China has used lockdowns over and over to get on top of outbreaks. They seem to have worked. What's gone so wrong this time? First of all, let's face it, it's the Omicron variant, so the challenge has increased compared to previous variants. But it appears the problem this time was that the Shanghai government was slow to act, and there were already about 900 cases a day before the lockdown was implemented citywide. And this is really unusual for China. Normally, other cities would lock down when the, there is just a, you know, a handful of cases and force everyone to get tested. But Shanghai had kind of prided itself on having this alternative model. It was the city in China that remained open. Life went on there, even as other big cities like Tianjin or Wuhan or Nanjing, uh, when they shut down, Shanghai, every time there was a mild outbreak there over the course of this two-year pandemic, they somehow managed to nip it in the bud. So perhaps that was the idea at the outset. It obviously exploded in terms of cases. We've had around 25, 26, 27,000 cases a day. I suppose the officials would look at that, Linda, and say at least it's stabilising. It's not continuing to shoot upwards. But they really are trying to go from about 25, 26,000 a day down to zero. That's Mm. what they are still pursuing. Virtually nobody else in the world is going with a COVID zero strategy anymore. So clearly China, the Chinese government believes it's it's still workable, notwithstanding this Shanghai problem. So is there politics behind that? Yeah, massive. Uh, in fact, what you just said, uh, no one else in the world, no major country uh, is completely correct because Taiwan, just across the Taiwan Strait, this week abandoned COVID zero And Taiwan took great pride for the past two years in its handling of the pandemic, closed borders, quarantines. And now that Omicron uh, is clocking about 800 cases a day in Taipei or across the island in Taiwan, the government here has said we're not going to do a Shanghai and try and keep it down to zero. And so that's pretty significant. It really does leave China as the only major country left that is still pursuing elimination. Politics is a huge factor in this. Even though you get Chinese health officials saying that the hospital systems will be inundated, the burden on the health system will be too much, that's why we can't let the virus uh, run wild. But in reality, you have a government under leader Xi Jinping who has made a big, big deal for the past two years about how China has a superior system to the West when it comes to handling COVID, that China cares about people's lives, unlike those countries overseas that allow the virus to spread. This is literally the rhetoric that the Chinese government has been pumping out day in, day out for two years. And people in China, by and large, seem to be very supportive of the COVID zero policy. So if they flip the script and they start allowing people to live with the virus in some capacity, you inevitably will get some deaths Inevitably, it's more difficult for the government to defend that legacy of having one of the lowest, if not the lowest per capita COVID rates in the world. 
And this is probably a major reason why Xi Jinping is, is fighting tooth and nail to try and keep the COVID zero policy going. So in terms of the politics, there is a big Communist Party Congress coming up. If President Xi is trying to prove that he has control of COVID before then, could he you know, be in a risky position if he can't get this Shanghai thing under control? I mean, what are the political ramifications potentially? Looking in from the outside, it's difficult to see any anything that would really derail Xi Jinping getting that unprecedented third term in power. But it feels to me that his handling of COVID is basically his biggest legacy to date. Now, people don't vote for him, but his fellow leaders in the upper echelons of the Communist Party, they're the ones ultimately who hold the keys to whether he can have that third term. Now, it looks like he's so powerful that he'll get it no matter what. But if things did go disastrously wrong, this is the wrong time for him in the, in the lead up over the next six or seven or eight months towards that meeting at the end of the year. So, yes, I think the politics are a huge factor because normally in the lead up to a party congress, they only happen once every five years, Chinese leaders don't want anything to go wrong and a massive COVID outbreak would be a disaster scenario for them. Bill Bertels, the ABC's East Asia correspondent. Well, that's this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe. And while you're there, you might want to check our new weekday podcast with Samantha Hawley. It's called ABC News Daily. This week is produced by Eleanor Whitehead, Emily Burke, Will Ockenden and me, Linda Mottram. Have a good weekend. <laughs>